Chapter Five, Part One of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One by John Fox, edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter Five: An Account of the Inquisition, Part One. When the Reformed religion began to diffuse the gospel light throughout Europe. Pope Innocent III entertained great fear for the Romish Church. He accordingly instituted a number of inquisitors, or persons who were to make inquiry after, apprehend, and punish, heretics, as the Reformed were called by the Papists. At the head of these inquisitors was one Dominic, who had been canonized by the Pope, in order to render his authority the more respectable. Dominic and the other inquisitors spread themselves into various Roman Catholic countries, and treated the Protestants with the utmost severity. In process of time, the Pope, not finding these roving inquisitors so useful as he had imagined, resolved upon the establishment of fixed and regular courts of inquisition. After the order for these regular courts, the first office of inquisition was established in the city of Toulouse, and Dominic became the first regular inquisitor, as he had before been the first roving inquisitor. Courts of Inquisition were now erected in several countries, but the Spanish Inquisition became the most powerful and the most dreaded of any. Even the kings of Spain themselves, though arbitrary in all other respects, were taught to dread the power of the lords of the Inquisition, and the horrid cruelties they exercised compelled multitudes, who differed in opinion from the Roman Catholics, carefully to conceal their sentiments. The most zealous of all the Popish monks, and those who most implicitly obeyed the Church of Rome, were the Dominicans and Franciscans. These, therefore, the Pope thought proper to invest with an exclusive right of presiding over the different courts of Inquisition, and gave them the most unlimited powers, as judges delegated by him, and immediately representing his person. They were permitted to excommunicate or sentence to death whom they thought proper, upon the most slight information of heresy. They were allowed to publish crusades against all whom they deemed heretics, and enter into leagues with sovereign princes, to join their crusades with their forces. In 1244 their power was further increased by the emperor Frederick II, who declared himself the protector and friend of all the inquisitors, and published the cruel edicts, viz., 1. That all heretics who continue obstinate should be burnt. 2. That all heretics who repented should be imprisoned for life. This zeal in the emperor, for the inquisitors of the Roman Catholic persuasion, arose from a report which had been propagated throughout Europe that he intended to renounce Christianity and turn Mahometan. The emperor therefore attempted, by the height of bigotry, to contradict the report and to show his attachment to popery by cruelty. The officers of the inquisition are three inquisitors or judges, a fiscal proctor, two secretaries, a magistrate, a messenger, a receiver, a jailer, an agent of confiscated possessions, several assessors, counsellors, executioners, physicians, surgeons, doorkeepers, familiars, and visitors, who are sworn to secrecy. The principal accusation against those who are subject to this tribunal is heresy, which comprises all that is spoken or written against any of the articles of the creed or the traditions of the Roman Church. The Inquisition likewise takes cognizance of such as are accused of being magicians, and of such who read the Bible in the common language, the Talmud of the Jews, 
or the Alcoran, of the Mahometans. Upon all occasions, the inquisitors carry on their processes with the utmost severity, and punish those who offend them with the most unparalleled cruelty. A Protestant has seldom any mercy shown him, and a Jew, who turns Christian, is far from being secure. A defense in the Inquisition is of little use to the prisoner, for a suspicion only is deemed sufficient cause of condemnation, and the greater his wealth, the greater his danger. The principal part of the Inquisitor's cruelties is owing to their rapacity. They destroy the life to possess the property, and, under the pretense of zeal, plunder each obnoxious individual. A prisoner in the Inquisition is never allowed to see the face of his accuser, or of the witnesses against him, but every method is taken by threats and tortures to oblige him to accuse himself, and by that means corroborate their evidence. If the jurisdiction of the Inquisition is not fully allowed, vengeance is denounced against such as call it in question, for if any of its officers are opposed, those who oppose them are almost certain to be sufferers for the temerity. The maxim of the Inquisition being to strike terror and awe those who are the objects of its power into obedience. High birth, distinguished rank, great dignity, or eminent employments are no protection from its severities, and the lowest officers of the Inquisition can make the highest characters tremble. When the person impeached is condemned, he is either severely whipped, violently tortured, sent to the galleys, or sentenced to death, and in either case the effects are confiscated. After judgment, a procession is performed to the place of execution, which ceremony is called an auto da fe, or act of faith. The following is an account of an auto da fe, performed at Madrid in the year 1682. The officers of the Inquisition, preceded by trumpets, kettle-drums, and their banner, marched on the 30th of May, in cavalcade, to the palace of the Great Square, where they declared by proclamation that, on the 30th of June, the sentence of the prisoners would be put in execution. Of these prisoners, twenty men and women, with one renegade Mahometan, were ordered to be burned. Fifty Jews and Jewesses, having never before been imprisoned and repenting of their crimes, were sentenced to a long confinement and to wear a yellow cap. The whole court of Spain was present on this occasion. The Grand Inquisitor's chair was placed in a sort of tribunal far above that of the king. Among those who were to suffer was a young Jewess of exquisite beauty, and but seventeen years of age. Being on the same side of the scaffold where the queen was seated, she addressed her, in hopes of obtaining a pardon, in the following pathetic speech. Great queen, will not your royal presence be of some service to me in my miserable condition? Have regard to my youth, and, oh, consider that I am about to die for professing a religion imbibed from my earliest infancy. Her majesty seemed greatly to pity her distress, but turned away her eyes, as she did not dare to speak a word in behalf of a person who had been declared a heretic. Now mass began, in the midst of which the priest came from the altar, placed himself near the scaffold, and seated himself in a chair prepared for that purpose. The chief inquisitor then descended from the amphitheatre, dressed in his cope, and having a mitre on his head. After having bowed to the altar, he advanced towards the king's balcony and went up to it, attended by some of his officers, carrying a cross and the gospels, with a book containing the oath by which the kings of Spain obliged themselves to protect the Catholic faith, to extirpate heretics, and to support with all their power and force the prosecutions and decrees of the Inquisition. A like oath was administered to the councillors and the whole assembly. 
The mass was begun about twelve at noon, and did not end until nine in the evening, being protracted by a proclamation of the sentence of the several criminals, which were already separately rehearsed aloud one after the other. After this followed the burnings of the twenty-one men and women, whose intrepidity in suffering that horrid death was truly astonishing. The king's near situation to the criminals rendered their dying groans very audible to him. He could not, however, be absent from this dreadful scene, as it was esteemed a religious one, and his coronation oath obliged him to give a sanction by his presence to all the acts of the tribunal. What we have already said may be applied to inquisitions in general, as well as to that of Spain in particular. The inquisition belonging to Portugal is exactly upon a similar plan to that of Spain, having been instituted much about the same time, and put under the same regulations. The inquisitors allow the torture to be used only three times, but during those times it is so severely inflicted that the prisoner either dies under it or continues always after a cripple, and suffers the severest pains upon every change of weather. We shall give an ample description of the severe torments occasioned by the torture, from the account of one who suffered it the three respective times, but happily survived the cruelties he underwent. At the first time of torturing, six executioners entered, stripped him naked to his drawers, and laid him upon his back on a kind of stand elevated a few feet from the floor. The operation commenced by putting an iron collar around his neck and a ring to each foot, which fastened him to the stand. His limbs being thus stretched out, they wound two ropes around each thigh, which ropes being passed under the scaffold, through holes made for that purpose, were all drawn tight at the same instant of time by four of the men on a given signal. It is easy to conceive that the pains which immediately succeeded were intolerable. The ropes, which were of a small size, cut through the prisoner's flesh to the bone, making the blood to gush out at eight different places thus bound at a time. As the prisoner persisted in not making any confession of what the inquisitors required, the ropes were drawn in this manner four times successively. The manner of inflicting the second torture was as follows. They forced his arms backwards, so that the palms of his hands were turned outward behind him. When, by means of a rope, they fastened them together at the wrists, and which was turned by an engine, they drew them by degrees nearer each other, in such a manner that the back of each hand touched, and stood exactly parallel to each other. In consequence of this violent contortion, both his shoulders became dislocated, and a considerable quantity of blood issued from his mouth. This torture was repeated thrice, after which he was again taken to the dungeon, and the surgeon set the dislocated bones. Two months after the second torture, the prisoner being a little recovered, was again ordered to the torture-room, and there, for the last time, made to undergo another kind of punishment, which was inflicted twice without any intermission. The executioners fastened a thick iron chain around his body, which crossing at the breast terminated at the wrists. They then placed him with his back against a thick board, at each extremity whereof was a pulley, through which there ran a rope that caught at the end of the chain at his wrists. The executioner then, stretching the end of his rope by means of a roller, placed at a distance behind him, pressed or bruised his stomach in proportion as the ends of the chains were drawn tighter. They tortured him at this manner to such a degree that his wrists, as well as his shoulders, were quite dislocated. They were, however, soon set by the surgeons, but the barbarians, not yet satisfied with this species of cruelty, made him immediately undergo the like torture a second time, which he sustained, 
though if possible attended with keener pains, with equal constancy and resolution. After this he was again remanded to the dungeon, attended by the surgeon to dress his bruises and adjust the part dislocated, and here he continued until their auto la fe, or jail delivery, when he was discharged, crippled, and diseased for life. End of chapter 5, part 1